Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Chloe Hamilton graduated from Stanford in 2019 with a BA in Symbolic Systems. She is currently earning her master's in Symbolic Systems and Philosophy at Stanford. No one dies here. We gathered around dusk, three chairs for the six of us, a bottle of red gasping for air in my clutch, drowning something empty inside of me. And I speak more than I usually do. In their angular circles, larks sigh. Yesterday, the angels forgot to hide the linens they put in the trees to dry, and Pete was graced by hay fever. Apparently, it's geese that can fly the highest, we learn, And apparently, they fly over the Himalayas. That's kind of like cheating, Beth says, because do they just walk up the Himalayas and then hover over? We whisper about the corpses up there that have never been recovered. I think it's convenient for when the next ice age hits, these men with their yellow boots will just wake up and rise from a centennial slumber. And we talk about the creatures that go down the deepest, and Sam, the biologist, says, It's bacteria, and we say, yes, of course it's bacteria, but we'd like something more exciting than that. Beth fact-checks, but the slow connection leaves us time for speculation. It's a shark-like terror that goes down the deepest, and I say it must be related to the Loch Ness Monster. I think about how nameless we are in the ocean, and I can't believe that you, of all creatures, have no name in the ocean. And if we swam deep enough, no country could claim our bodies, and our souls would forever roam in uncharted territories. So we wander together in the red night, and we discuss if it's easier to recover bodies from the Everest or underwater. Power absolute. Many times, in the shade of circle leaves, He wanted to die. Recently, Lois is solitary, his pavan tamed, the grandiose harnessed, head bent down low, guilty like a tail. He flags his nudity, hidden under the blue mosquito net. Why did they ever let me build my home on a marsh? Absent-minded curses to Le Vaux, Le Brun, and Mansart. Fleur de lis branches fan warnings. There is no folly in building a still-twig castle. His croaks behead him. What will I do if I die? Buzzes the crown vault. Am I who I was when the sun rose? Mansart knows. Without a mirror, he doesn't recognize himself. This one is about um, the plague that they um, sent with the Voyager 11 to talk to alien, like, be able to communicate. Talk about pioneers. First, they mask the vulva. 
Already they planted her, rigid like a sunflower, at his right side. Don Quixote tells Carl Sagan that lacks chivalry. To prevent them from seeming like giant men, they drew the space shift behind in relative lines. I'm not an alien, and I don't understand. The man lifts his hand to indicate peace and movement. Between the girl and the guy, in the general scheme of human geometry, some fruit is missing. Forgotten, the serpent will crawl into Voyager, shed a thousand skins, and hiss at the utter absence of eccentricity. Man and woman's naked bodies sent to space as contours of sketches. The title of this one is Horatius 9999. I wonder if the Roman bridge in Cordoba cursed you too. When I write, I cannot help but sleep. It's my mother's curse. I sleep to escape time, the Roman bridge understands. But I'm tired of sleeping. To avoid writing, I'll do anything. Draw on cereals, eat cereals, drink more than I should. No sleep before the train, not a good idea. In one of those clear bags that never fasten, I have some figs and an apricot. I'd like to throw up a lot of things, but it's out of question since I'm wearing clear shoes, my mother's. It was raining when I left, and my mother, under her giant umbrella, waved at her little soldier. I should have shed one of my famous tears. Blinking. He gave up on growing five years ago. Drinks his coffee black. Five years ago, at least had a pretty face. Now he blames it on the beer. His muscles are corded on rockets, his boy sheets, saving to buy drinks for the girls he wants so badly. Nothing irritates him more than his head. It blinks too much. His mom found him a laundromat nearby. He's not been. He thought he'd muster the will to go home to his parka, but spends Christmas in the city alone, hiding the stink in the snow. Blue electric hours on his nightstand arrest him, like the siren call of police cars. Head led in, he stopped counting sheep when he was ten, and now's not the time to start again. He falls asleep dreaming of home, of the CVS's sweet smell on Lincoln Street, and of McDonald's on Church Street, with Bruce and Joe, where he felt in his pocket his driver's license for the first time, and Bruce's voice say, boys, I'm getting married to Belle. The other day, he drove through, and the Big Mac tasted worse than plastic. When Joe asked him why he'd been keeping that headless orchid for so long, he bought a plant. Her name's Leah. Now Leah crawls wilder than the rainforest on his chest. The other day, he left Laurel a voicemail. Hey, Laurel. Five years later, and it's February 14th. Hey, Laurel. I know it's been a while. As he soaps, he hears the digestion in Joe's stomach of the three pizza boxes ripped open on the sofa. Five years and two days ago, he was late to the cinema, and they sat on the front row, tilting their heads like ridiculous birds. Palms dude, she breathes, not him. He knows he's not great looking, and that his hair rises in spikes uglier than a tarred gull. The unkempt lawn on his cheeks murmur, well, what can you do? Hardly anything irritates him more than a missing letter on a neon sign. Nowadays, 
it's hard to tell if it's worse to get up or go to bed. To be Japanese and to save money, he didn't buy a frame and his mattress is naked on the floor. Problem is when he wakes up, he feels like a shitty animal and to get out of his hole takes him hours. And when his naked body enters the shower, he thinks, I made it through the day, his bare body frozen like a plucked hen. Aside in a bush. Go spread your plumage, tarred green feathers, far away from me. The folds of your neck grimace when you croak. You say that those are cherry blossom trees, and I see a garden in Hokkaido covered in snow. You point to hemlock, and I tell you about Socrates. When I rose from your bed, I would see the trees. Now I wake up from another bed and see the trees. Blinking like a silk fan, the pavan of your feathers. I only like when you sing the truth, yet I'm not satisfied with the truth. I found you out of boredom, but you don't distract me from me. Pouting behind the blinds, branches green. They envy the low bush that crawls to our window in between us, or the fly diving in the curtains like an aviator in the Pacific. I beg you to spare me from your songs. Sing at another tree. I tell the trees not to be jealous. If I sleep, it's to forget that you're by my side. I couldn't make you if I tried, as spirit smith its imprint on your bow. It must have held your face in its hands and stroked your face with its sunflower fingers. I don't have a country, and I don't have a song. I don't know what it means to move across the Pacific. Hi, Chloe. Hi. Thank you for appearing on Off the Page Thank and you for having me. sharing your work with us. Um, I just want to start by asking how you came to poetry um, and how you began writing and what, what poets have influenced you. I started writing poetry because um, I was really like writing in general, but I was stumbling a lot on every single word. And so it was a way, condensed way to like say what I wanted to say. And also I couldn't really build a narrative if the words weren't exactly what I wanted them to be. So it just seemed like a natural format that I was drawn to. Um, I also, yeah, I read a, a lot of poetry when I was still do. I know that he receives a lot of criticism, but there's some poems by William Carlos Williams that like uh, fall with the landscape of Icarus that I, I believe are really the right words put at the right place. I, I, I like reading poetry in other languages because it just really captures something really quickly and really well. I didn't realize that William Carlos Williams had become, has he become controversial? Well, in the poetry, in the like classes I've taken, people were like, oh no, William Carlos Williams again. Oh, like, right. You know, like the cat. Wheelbarrow, yeah, 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 yeah too yeah. ubiquitous. Yeah, exactly. It's like saying your favorite movie, Citizen Kane. And you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you grew up in France? Yeah. Yeah. And so did you grow up speaking French and English sort of side by side or just French at first? Um, I started off speaking French and then uh, I went to school, a school that was bilingual. So both languages were like omnipresent. And do you write poetry in, in French also? Um, yes, I go through phases. When one language doesn't seem to convey what I wanted to say, I use the other. And recently I've been I've been, well, I used to be really scared of writing in French because it just seems like such a 
immense task. I would just be embarrassed to even try because I don't know, the, the level of expectation is so high. But now that I've started, I really enjoy it. And um, I think that my vocabulary in English is a bit limited. Mm-hmm. So sometimes in my poems, I use like French words that I transport. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so curious, like what, what in your view are the differences, like the different possibilities between French and English for poems? Like what are things that you feel you can do in an English language poem versus in a French language poem? The problem with uh, my approach to French is that um, I tend to be really descriptive. And what I like about English is its conciseness. And it just seems to me that in English, I can say things yeah, more explicitly w- with more impact. But then when I want to describe like a movement, something subtle, like French is the go-to language. Yeah, there's sounds in French, um, not even like alliter- like explicit alliterations, but sounds in the words like S's and F's that just paint a um, portrait of the scene really well. That's, that's, I mean, that's really fascinating to me because I have never spoken a second language well enough that I could even imagine trying to be particularly expressive or creative in it. I feel like that's, that's an immense gift. So I wanted to ask uh, about a few specific poems. First, I, something that struck me about a few of these poems is that they, they focus on male protagonists in uh, power absolute and and blinking and I'm just curious like if as much as you can share like how those poems originated and, and what sort of drew you to those those persona um, so the the two poems are very like emblematic of the difference I mean um, power absolute is about Louis the 14th um, forgot to mention so uh, so it's it's really about the like one of the main French symbols, whereas uh, blinking is more about the American stereotype. Um, so it seemed to work with stereotypes or symbols. What I like about those uh, characters is that they're very lost. I, I like try to take them and you know what I know of Louis XIV and like what the stories and um, try to depict them in their like really like loneliness and isolation, and then they just convey like or then they just become us I think that the blinking one I was drawn to this one well I like to to talk about the male persona because then people think it's not about me mm-hmm. or I mean no one, I mean I just that's also why I like transitioning between English and French it's because then um there's no expectation of anything so it basically like is able to convey a distance between me and the character, which is helpful when I'm writing a poem because otherwise I don't know where I'm going. I, I really need a distance. And that and that distance and that mask can maybe allow you to be more candid. Exactly. In a way, yeah. Yeah. I feel like it works that way in fiction too. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try to make it not too, um, like I don't want everything, I don't want to paint everything in a like dark way, but I like, I like them darkness of very like candid reality well i'm also i'm interested in what you just said about uh, being drawn in the louis the 14th poem and in the sort of uh, as i read it depressed depressed guy at college poem <laughs> um 
you know, you use the word symbol and then also stereotype. And I thought, well, it's that's interesting that that would be something that would attract you, like to get you into a poem. Like, are you interested in trying to see what's underneath that stereotype? Um, I think so. It's also, yeah, it's interesting to um, like take you know, figures that no one would associate with anything, like, really human or people that, you know, want to dissociate um, themselves with. You know, it's, like, a myth. And it also, like, has so many stories. Or, like, there are so many stories around them that are, like, for example, Louis Fourteenth. Basically, the poem was, like, a play on, like, how, you know, the sun was setting on, basically, his whole vision. I think that was what I was trying to say at first. And also, like, what I like about um, symbols like that is that there's already, like, a whole narrative around them. So I can just, like, pick things I want to talk about and turn them in the way I I, I want. I also really like uh, being able to, so maybe I don't express this necessarily well, but, like, putting references to really weird things. um, (laughs) And then, yeah, it makes me, like, happy. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also something that poetry especially can do is it can be elusive, you know, it can it can play off of these like larger narratives or iconographies. Um, and then the other thing I really wanted to ask you about was, um, I guess, tone, because not to lift the veil too much on this episode, but when we were recording, you, you did a retake of uh, Horatius because you wanted it to sound less serious. Right, and it's funny because when I was reading that before we recorded, I thought, yeah, there's something like on the one hand, the content seems very heavy, and it's about like this this kind of like like loneliness and alienation and and depression. But then that last line, I should have shed one of my famous tears, feels like it's subtly um, satirizing or mocking the speaker a little bit. And so I'm just kind of curious, like where that poem came from and and how you sort of want to create a a balance of tones there. Yeah, I think that hypocrisy hypocrisy is um, really present in what I try to, what I I write, because there's always like the, you know, conflict between like what you feel genuinely like, and in this case, it's like depression, like a depressive stance. Um, And then there's also like, there's always like this kind of distance from the facts. And so while you can be genuinely unhappy, you also realize that, well, in this case, the speaker realizes that the expression of her unhappiness is sometimes fake. Also, it, within the poem, the, what the speaker does is a bit absurd, like a drawn serials. Um, so it's just, it's all absurd, and I think it's playing on um, on that. That's a That's a really subtle and mature thing to, 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 to articulate in a poem. That's really interesting. Um, maybe the last poem I want to ask you about was actually the first one you read, No One Dies Here. I was interested in that poem in the shift from a group portrayal to like a direct address. The speaker um, invokes a you and then a we and sort of seems to step apart from this group. And I was curious in in how that turn sort of works for you or how you how you understand it. Yeah, I was really happy to like pull the group thing off because it's really I I always um, like by default go to 
you know, one character. And I like having the companionship in, like, within the poem of, like, multiple voices. The shift is, well, because I couldn't continue with the group, I think. It was too much. Uh, it, it's really it's really hard in, in a way to, like, portray a, a whole group. It's always, like, I forget the term for this. It's when you have, like, um, you know, a narrative, like, um, just a portrayal of facts without too much, um, um, you know, like, thought. And then you have, like, the aside of the reflection on what was just said. And so it's a bit modeling that. And, I mean, the conversation is a bit strange. Like, talk about, you know, bodies on the Himalayas. But then it, it becomes a point of conversation between those two t- characters at the end. So th- anything can really become sort of, you know, genuine a concern. It's like, what, how are they going to, well, how can we escape from this situation? Have you, I, have you read the story, um, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love by Raymond Carver? Mm-mm. This poem actually reminds me a little bit of that story, um, which is, you know, many pages long, but it, it has the similar conversational dynamic. It's like two couples sitting around drinking and talking about love. And mm-hmm. so just as like this poem contains these different sort of reflections or tangents on on mortality and on sort of like the the extreme ends of the earth, right? In that mm-hmm. story, there are all these different um, stories within stories about past love affairs they've had or like anecdotes about um, like medieval knights and, you know, talking about chivalry and just like the, it has a sort of like loose um, associative mm-hmm. tapestry kind of like a symposium-like feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, it's interesting, like, the whole, the dynamic between um, extremes, like, height and depth, because that's something that, in general, I like to portray, like, um, character, like, extremes in feeling. And then I try to find, like, a middle ground. For example, in this case, even the way characters talk, it's like, they whisper, like, and then they speak, and then it seems like their thought, their thoughts are like so loud. So it just, I like the variation, and also the like height and depth, those inaccessible like uh, locations. You just realize how little you know of them. So it's like that's the point of the poem. It's like actually we don't know anything about like what is in the ocean down below. So yeah, it just made, makes you aware of like the lack of like knowledge in general right outside of this yeah, small world exactly. that we're in yeah. yeah um if i can ask do you have any like future plans for writing or do you how do you see writing sort of factoring in <laughs> <laughs> to your to your life i definitely want to have the courage to continue writing sometimes it's difficult to start <laughs> I think writing is something that I, I really, really, really want to continue. Great. Well, I, I, I think you will. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for being here on Off the Page. Thank you for having me here. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. 
Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Osei Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.